0: Good morning. Uh, also, at this time, we will dismiss the children to uh, to be part of our children's program on Sunday here. So, if you are a kid or have kids here, uh, go to the back. You can meet Mary back there. All right. Well, uh, good morning. Good, good to be here with you. My name is Benjamin. Uh, it's a pleasure to to en- enjoy this third Sunday of Advent, Advent with you and and to worship Jesus uh, together. Um, uh, Originally, John was gonna, Pastor John was going to preach this sermon, and he got a, a case of the sickness. And so uh, he wanted to bless you very thoughtfully by not just breathing his, his uh, sick virus to air all over you for the whole sermon. So uh, that said, I, I'm happy to step in um, for a couple of reasons. I also am—apparently it's a little bit of sickness going around. Have you seen that? Have you heard of that? So I also am getting over something. I will do my best not to cough into the microphone. Um, but uh, I'm happy to step in. Because what we're talking about in this series, as we continue our series in Advent here, of how the birth of Jesus brings hope to our work. It's it's really... Uh, prominent for me in my life as well. Uh, I have worked both in the marketplace, and I've worked in nonprofit world. I've worked in church ministry full-time, and uh, and now I'm back in the marketplace now. And so all these things that have happened in my life over 20 years or so of a, of a career, I guess, a lot of different stuff I've done. And um, it's been a major blessing for me to to embrace a doctrine of vocation, a belief about what God calls us to do that is really rich and really full of uh, the calling of God and the blessing of Jesus in our lives. And so happy, happy here to to be with you and and, um, talk a little bit about, um, continue our series here. Uh, We're we're calling this hopeful realism in our work because today actually we're going to talk about the difficulty of work. Now, some of you, you're shocked, like, what? Well, how is work difficult? No, no, like, we all know there is difficulty in our work. And, and as we get into this, I want to give us a reminder, too, that um, when we talk about work, we're talking about something that's like, bigger than just our jobs, even if our jobs are paid or unpaid, but, but really, we're talking about anything and everything that God gives us to do in our lives Uh, There's a text that that comes to mind here. It's from 1 Corinthians 7.17 and it says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Whatever situation God has assigned to you, each of you and all of us together, that is really our work. Now, that can be your job that you go to, and that's a major part of this. And it can be the vocation that God has given you if you're a person who, if you're a stay at home parent, or you do something that's sort of unpaid, but it's still a major part of your life as work. But it also can be taking the car for an oil change, or bringing someone to an appointment, uh, you know, a loved one to an appointment, or getting up early to bring the kids to school, or just doing the dishes. This is work. And this is what God has given us and assigned to us in our lives. And it's, it's so important here. Um, and, and, and then the other part of that too is just... I look at my work history and I chuckle. Uh, I did not, I was not a person who just grabbed onto the thing and stayed in that lane the whole time. Uh, I have worked at a fast food restaurant as a cook. It was just grease covered everything. You know, it was a Hardee's, if you remember that fast food chain. Uh, I've worked as, um, as a valet going to drive fancy cars of people as they come to a restaurant. I've worked as an armored truck driver, really. Like where I had to wear a bulletproof vest and drove a big armored truck, and we picked up a, a crazy amount of money in cash, and I would carry these bags of $100 bills that weighed 50 pounds. That's how full they were. And uh, that was interesting. And, and I didn't do that too long, because I realized I wasn't getting paid enough to risk my life for that. Uh, and, uh, and I've, I've worked in, in design and and, and uh, branding and strategy and business and marketing. And that's kind of where I am now, working for a big company in digital experience and marketing. And and so this whole breadth of things that, that I have done, um, to me, I look back on it with a lot of gratitude, especially now, knowing that those are things that God had assigned to me. At the time, they may not have been fun or enjoyable, or really, at the time me knowing that they might have been shaping me more than I realized. And, and it's so important. It's all part of our work. So what we're going to look at today is, is a couple pieces. One, uh, Exodus 1, about how Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, brutally oppresses the people of God while they're in Egypt. It's been years since they came and were prosperous under Joseph, and now they're being oppressed. And we want to look at a portrait of work outside the garden. And then we're going to spend a few minutes owning the difficulty of our work. It's... Difficult, right? And we'll talk about some examples of that. You all know that. Every single one of us feels it in some capacity. Even even if you're young and in elementary school, you think about your schoolwork and you think, It's not fun. I don't always love it. At least at least my crew doesn't, and the other kids I've known. Some of you are special, but most of most of you just feel that. We all feel that from young to old. And then finally, importantly, we're gonna arrive. At the, we're going to come to the arrival of Jesus and, and how Jesus' arrival, his advent, that we're in this series now, how it provides this hope-filled realism for us. How it can be really incredibly beautiful and rich when we see through the lens of the gospel what God has given us for work and how to approach that difficulty of work. So, so let's get into it here. Um, let's look first at a, at a portrait of work outside the garden. Exodus 1. It's got this picture of life. Uh, a quick recap. We've got, we've got creation and the garden and how God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and he blesses them abundantly and then they wanted to be God and they sinned and they disobeyed. They tried to do it themselves and it broke not just their lives but all of our lives. It broke the world The corruption of sin came in. A separation from God. And the blessing of God then was thinned out and removed. And in in some capacity, it wasn't as rich and abundant. And our relationship with God was broken. And they were exiled from the garden. Well, things happen. Several cycles. And God brings prominent people into the story of redemption. Uh, Three of the major ones are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel after he wrestles with God. And he has a bunch of sons. 11 to start with, and the youngest one's named Joseph. And then a, a 12th one named Benjamin at the end. Of this, so 12 total sons for, for, for Israel. And Joseph, as we know, I think most of us know this story, is, um, yes, a little naive, very naive, and maybe a little arrogant. God gives him these dreams. He says he's going to rule over his brothers. He tells his brothers that. I don't, I don't know if you have any siblings yourselves, or you have, you have kids with siblings. Generally, when one says, I'm better than you, and I'm stronger than you, and I'll rule, rule over you, it just doesn't go that well, right? That's just not the normal way that siblings say, amen, praise God that you'll rule over us someday. And that exact formula happens there too. They get jealous, but not just jealous as in being mean to him or, or, or messing with him, but actually sending him into slavery. I mean, wanting him to die. They almost come to murder him and said, they say, let's, let's sell him off, send him to Egypt. And that's what happens. Joseph lands in Egypt and there God blesses him richly, not without difficulty, if you remember the story, but blesses him richly. And Joseph becomes essentially the leader of Egypt, like number two in all of Egypt as a, as a foreigner. And and then the people of God find themselves in Egypt because of a famine in Israel. And, and Joseph, in his place, is able to bless and to forgive and bless his brothers who did him so badly. And, uh, and here we are in this story. So things are good. And Israel is fruitful. And they're multiplying. And, and so here, here's a text from, from Exodus 1, 6 through 6-7. Now, Joseph and all, uh, all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increasing, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So think about this language, right? Exceedingly fruitful, multiplied greatly, this reminds us of something from Genesis, from the garden. Genesis one twenty eight says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so the writer of Exodus wants to make it really clear to us that there's this Eden-like blessing happening. It's not in the garden of Eden, but there's a blessing of fruitfulness and multiplication that's happening with Israel. They're being blessed, and they're growing in people. And he wants us to see that that connection. But, and there's always this but within a corrupted world uh, of sin, right? Pharaoh especially. Pharaoh actually like a jealous sibling, frankly. The new king comes in, and, and he sees this. is hundreds of years. This is well after Joseph. He comes in, and he sees these people, this foreign people, in his own land, in his kingdom, growing, multiplying, and being blessed. I mean, just with abundance. Life is going great for these people. And he gets nervous. What if what if they come and, and, and start messing with What if they partner with our enemies and take us over? So here's what the Pharaoh says in Exodus 1, 9 through 9-10. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And so, He's got a plan then to eliminate this threat. How do you do it? You, you, you crush them. And here's how he crushes them. Through work. Through hard, unfair, oppressive work and labor. So they put slave masters over them, over the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor, labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter. With harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. It's quite a word, ruthlessly worked, bitter labor. Look at this concentration of language here that describes the life of the Hebrews. It's it's just it's shocking, like how hard this seems. Just brick and mortar, ruthless labor, um, bitter labor pushed on them, and then it gets worse, though. So one, it's it's one thing to be uh, dehumanized in, in the calling of, of your work by some, uh, some insecure dictator. But more than that then, they were asked to do not just brick and mortar, but actually dehumanizing work itself. Because they said to the midwives, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him but if it is a girl, let her live. Not only is it harsh labor of building things, they're actually asking their own people to to murder themselves, to murder their people, to murder their own babies. It's brutal and it's dehumanizing all around. And so we see this picture of the Hebrew people experiencing something of life and work the way it was designed to be. First, that blessing part of fruitfulness and multiplication. And then we see it in a way that's, profoundly broken, a a deep distortion of what work is meant to be from God. And that's what work and life outside the garden looks like. And um, we feel some of that. I mean, uh, truthfully, it's hard for us to, I think, completely fathom what it means to be forced to build in bitter labor with with brick and with mortar. Um, And we have you know, we live in a country that has laws and has some preventive measures against those things. There's OSHA and there's laws that protect employees. And on the one hand, we can't identify with them. But on the other hand, we know what it is to have our work distorted. We know how it can bring pain and disillusionment, how it can just wear us out and feel unsatisfying. So we feel some of this, this distortion of work and, and we have to own that. So let's, let's, let's take a moment. Um, not always the most enjoyable, but important to, to just look at it and be truthful, right? Let's take a moment and own the difficulty of our work. What does it mean for our work to be difficult? Um, work can be toilsome, difficult, frustrating, right? Some kinds of manual labor are just extremely hard. I have so much respect for people who just uh, do physical work day in and day out. And, and it's, what can be done is pretty incredible, but it also is hard on the body. It can wear the body out. I know, I know some carpenters who have crooked fingers because they've worked so hard and something along the way happened while they were hammering or lifting or whatever it was, and it just now they've got a, a crooked finger or uh, whatever it is, you know, knees that ache and all those things that happen with physical labor, a sore back from lifting things or lifting people when you're a caregiver— it can be hard. for us. It, it, physical work is hard and it can wear us out. Um, work can be really difficult because of chronic I- illness or injury. Just not feeling 100%. So difficult sometimes to go in and, and have the energy to work. If you work in the marketplace, in a business, you might feel this constant sense of competition, which is really one of these foundational pieces of what business is, to compete against the others and try to win and grow all the time everywhere, all the time, getting bigger and better and faster. That's, that's what American business often feels like and I know that really well. That's, that's the place where I work. And, and so that competition, that kind of never stopping push is really present for if, you, if, you, if you're there. Um, how about layoffs? When your job changes, you get laid off or you have to lay people off, both of them are are nasty i 've been on both sides of that fence, and it's it 's terrible all around on both sides it 's so bad and and yet it 's just part of the distortion of our work. Should that ever really happen? feels like no if i 'm doing good work and i 'm being diligent that that I should be able to stay and continue my work, but that 's just not how it shakes out' We've, Many of us have been there uh, what else uh, How about just working for an organization that's, that's really wonderful or that has a very clear purpose and meaning, like a not-for-profit or like a church, <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I know some amazing people who work for organizations like these, and I don't know of any of them who are like, we've got tons of cash, flush with cash. We don't need any more money. Like, that's the thing. You've got an organization now that's got clear purpose and clear meaning, doing good work in the world, and yet you know, the struggle always feels like we, we, we need enough resources to get our mission done. And so there's, there's no place here where, where work isn't difficult. Work can be disillusioning, too. Um, if you're in any sort of bigger company, especially, you get further and further and further away from the actual results of what you do, right? And that can be disillusioning, where in the old days, if you were a farmer, you go and do hard work by the sweat of your brow, but you plant seeds and you see them grow, hopefully, and you see the fruit of what you've done. But now in, in, in modern business and a lot of big corporations, you're, you're miles from really where the effect happens. And again, I, I feel that too. I'm in, I'm in marketing and that's many arm's lengths away from the actual real world sometimes. Um, as a student, like, remember this, if you can. Some of you, can you remember being students? Uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, college. You're sitting in class and you think to yourself, why am I learning this? <laughs> what, what good does this do me? Like, I don't understand how I'm ever going to use this, right? And in the old days, uh, some of us were told about like math, for instance, like, listen, you got to learn math. You're not going to walk around with a calculator in your pocket all day. Well, it t- turns out, right? It turns out, actually, that, that one was... That, that's not used anymore. We I do have a calculator in our pocket. The other one, to me, is just uh, the, the wonderful and wacky world of algebra. I don't know how, like, x squared over y squared equals z squared is really prominent in my own life, but you can feel that, right, if you're a student. It does stuff. We send rockets to the moon, so it, it, something's happening there, believe me. Uh, but, but we feel that, right? If you're a student and you're learning, you're like, I don't know if I need all this. Why am I learning this? Why am I spending his time and energy to do this. It can be disillusioning. Um, And then I think every single one of us has felt this. You ever come to the end of the day and you're like, that's it? Like, the day's done? Like, I, I have so much more to do. There's always more to do. I don't have enough energy or time to get everything done and I just gotta stop. And I think this is especially powerful when you work with People whether you're a caregiver or an educator or a parent, and you think, ah, there's more to do. There's more I could do. And I know for me, I don't know if you feel this, I get haunted by the hindsight sometimes too, which is I could have done it differently. That conversation, I could have handled that so much better. Or that thing that happened, or I just could have worked with that better. Or this project, I could have been more efficient. I don't know if you feel that. I do. You you play it back in your head. I could have done that better. Work is difficult, and it can be disillusioning like that too. And finally, work can be dehumanizing. In in very, very real ways in our world, there is still deep and explicit brokenness in, in vocations and work. There are still sweatshops in Nicaragua, there are still child forced child labor all over China. Uh, as you might know, most of the stuff we get comes from China. So it, we're all connected as a world. And, and there are some real explicit evils and injustices that happen that are dehumanizing. Um, you know, in, in America here, we, and, and really around the world, but, but especially here, we see it advertising. I mean, you ever just... Look at these commercials and advertising, wherever it is, billboard or TV or now our our phones all over the place, and they're just, just whispering to us all the time, your life isn't good enough. Your life isn't good enough. If only you had this thing, you would be better. And not only that, billions are spent on advertising to get a hold of kids so that they can make them into consumers that will buy their stuff for many, many, many years. This is super clear, by the way, in like the tobacco industry, right? They tried to get in early and get kids smoking at 12, make it look cool, and hook them for life. And they did uh, an incredible and terrible job at that because they made billions and billions off people, right? We know that. We see that now. But that's that's not just some abnormal circumstance. That's just work being broken and um, exploitive sometimes, right? That we want to hook those kids early and make them into consumers. If you're a stay-at-home parent, um, your children and family are probably asking for a lot from you. And again, all the time. It seems like it never stops. And it's very likely that you get tired. And maybe you feel sometimes like, when when does someone care for, for me? I care for everyone all the time. And when 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 I'm worn out, when will someone care for me? It can be feel like dehumanizing without them wanting that to be. Your family doesn't want that, but it can feel like that. Um, and, and you know, profit over people, and more and more and more the greed that companies have when CEOs make a hundred or three hundred times their employees' salaries. Like, wh- why? We don't. They don't need that. Um, in our post-COVID world, uh, we've got Zoom calls. Uh, or or to Microsoft Teams or whatever, and a bunch of us just interact with people via screens now, via a laptop or a computer screen. For me, at least, I'm mostly that all day long. I, I'm talking to people through this screen, and they're a face or a voice, and, and yes, I've gotten used to it, but uh, when I get to go in and be around real people in a real way, it's refreshing, and it's a reminder, like, whoa. This is way different. What we're doing right here, live and in person, is just, feels like the way it should be. We're real humans dealing with each other in a real way, physically and, and emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And um, that can't just be flattened, right, by virtual life. And yet, there we are. And we have to be sometimes. And, and the world is big and remote work uh, has a ton of advantages around the world too. But but there it is. Sometimes it can just feel like we're, we're really far apart. And And, and finally... Um, (laughs) woven throughout all this, work being toilsome and frustrating, work being disillusioning or work being dehumanizing. (laughs) We we just have to deal with people. I mean, can you can you? People are just so wacky. And and uh, when I was a pastor for years, I would have people come and talk to me, and I would get into conversations, and I would just my phrase was, "Wow, people are funny, and they are because it's." It's something about us where we just have so many blind spots of our own things and we expect more of others than we do of ourselves. And Whatever it is, I, I mean, one circumstance that's happened to me is uh, someone who is not very helpful in a work setting needs a favor from me. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do you a favor. You're not really a person that asks, has ever asked me if I need any help, but I, I will do this favor for you. And you do a thing and you give it back to them and they say, this is it. This is all you could do? Like, isn't it, isn't it just funny and bizarre in the way that, like, people are? And you all, you may have real people in your minds. Go ahead and just let the grace of God wash that and not say it out loud. But, uh, but you know, you know those people or those circumstances or those instances where you're just like, oh, that, that boss is just so insecure or that colleague is so self-absorbed or whatever it is. People are funny and we have to deal with them all the time in work. Of course, there's wonderful things about people, no doubt. But there are a lot of things that happen where you just say, oh, people are funny. Oh, they, they're just really... In the South, they would say, God bless them, you know? God bless them. Well, well bless your little heart. That's a, that's a phrase. It means a, a layer of things. There's many onions of layers in that little phrase. Bless your little heart. Uh, so So here we are, though, like, just running through all these places. I hope you feel this in some ways. like work can be difficult. Work is difficult. And this is what God has assigned to us. Whether we like it or not, God has given us all of these things to do in our lives to work. But the arrival of Jesus provides a hope-filled realism for our work. Realism in that We're not naive to these things. We just talked about all of them, and I bet bet at least several of those examples hit all of you in some capacity. But hope-filled, because we think about the goodness and the greatness of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus, and we have hope that there's something bigger and better within these hard, difficult circumstances here and beyond. And that's where hope comes from for us. The realism part's easy, we get it, and we get it that life, this is what life is like outside the garden. How do we get to this hope-filled realism? Well, here's, here's one answer. We have to process our disappointments, our disillusionments, the difficulty of our work, we have to process it in the presence of God. We have to recognize that that underneath all the toil and difficulty of our work is is some disappointment, is some grief. It, God's not afraid of you asking him why. He's not, a, he's not insecure. He knows you, He loves you, He created you. He's not going to cast you out because you say, "Why, God? Like what? Why this? Why this way? Why this wage or this boss?" Or this circumstance, I don't feel like I'm using everything that I am or have as my gifts. Or I, I am trying to use those things and I keep getting stifled. Or I made a mistake and was harshly judged for that. Why, why God? Why did you give me this kind of work? It's okay to ask that. But let's suggest a, a path for us forward, a way to, to really have hope and realism in the midst of our, our difficulty in work. So here, here's six steps. Six steps for, for really dealing with the difficulty of our work. Number one, go to the Psalms. Yes, go to the scriptures in general as much and as often as you're able to soak in them, absolutely. But for some reason, the Psalms, the way God has written them through multiple different people and voices, the Psalms hit every range of humanity and emotion that we feel that we are. And it's, it's really, um, it's so encouraging, I think, to have the Bible be real and not fake and not a veneer that sugarcoats things, but say, this is real life. So we go to the Psalms and we, we, see, um, we see our grief and our disappointment and our sorrow, and we can, we can process that in the presence of God. Maybe Psalm 13 or Psalm 16, Psalm 20, Psalm 25. Psalm 13 says, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if you're like me. Occasionally when I read psalms in the midst of a difficult circumstance, maybe even with work stuff, you, you, think, you see that word enemy, you're like, oh, I want that, that person's my enemy. You know, like, It feels like that, right? It can really quickly, like, Who, who's my enemy here? I wonder. But we bring this in the presence of God and his grace and his wisdom shine through to us. And we can process that rightly. It feels sometimes like you're getting triumphed over. Psalm 20 says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. And just these wonderful truths. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. The whole range of who we are and what we experience in life. Step two, sit in the presence of God. Find a time and a place to just sit in the presence of God and bring your disappointments before Him. Here I am, God, that here's me and my life. And I'm disappointed. And to be real about that with our with our Lord. Step three, to grieve over the life you wanted. This is this is real stuff. It's important for our spiritual growth that, that we take the time to recognize what we feel. We're we're not driven and ruled by our emotions, but we want to be whole people, not just logical and factual, but God has given us emotions and desires. Desires. And those desires aren't all fulfilled in this world, are they? And we feel it. That's part of that disappointment of work too. And to grieve over that life, it's not how I envisioned my work. I was hoping it'd be easier or more fulfilling or more fun or more lucrative or more whatever. And if I were to choose, this is not how I would have had my life turn out. It's a, that's, that's a scary thing to say, I think, out loud. Maybe underneath some of that, some of us feel like, well, if I say that to God, will he be mad? I mean, will... Will he be upset at me because he's the one who's designed my life? And again, the answer is God is not insecure. God is not afraid of your questions. He already knows what you're thinking. It's okay to say, God, this is not the way I would have chosen it. But we need that kind of honesty to get to really the heart of where we're at and where our hearts are at. Because step four is remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remind yourself of the good news of Jesus. Refresh yourself in the spirit of God who is present with us all the time. Never ending, never ceasing, because he loves us. We get to process that in, in the gospel, in the lens of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. So Psalm 13 says later on, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. So we bring our disappointments before God, and we remember his unfailing love and his salvation. We remember that he's been good to us. Sometimes you got to mark that out. How has God been good to me? How has God been faithful to me? Where have I seen his hand in my life in good ways? And we got to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of all these things that is actually reality. Not just all the bad stuff that feels larger when it's right in front of us. So we bring our complaint to him saying, if I were to choose, this is not how I would have chosen it. And and this is a, to me, this is a profound part of the gospel story of Jesus too. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, before he's going to go to the cross... And he says, Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. This, this path of going to the cross. Please take he, Jesus, the Son of God, eternal Son of God, says, if there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me. But your will be done, not mine. And I think within that reality, th- talk about realism from Jesus who was perfect and without sin and yet felt immensely the difficulty and toil of this world. The disillusionment of looking around and seeing sinners acting unjustly and horribly to each other and of course to him. And he says, but not, not my will, but yours. The trust in God. Jesus submitted himself to the Father even though it was difficult and we can follow him in that submission. And we remind ourselves, too, in hope, hope for the future, that goodness waits for us on the other side, brothers and sisters. This life feels long sometimes. It does. It can when you're tired and you're in pain and there's loss and there's disappointment. It can feel like a long life, but our life is just such a tiny, minuscule sliver in eternity where it's all goodness and all joy with Jesus. No more pain. No more toil like that. Work, I think, in heaven, yes, because work was good. Adam and Eve before sin were, were called to work in the garden, and we will work in heaven somehow. Don't let that throw you. Don't worry. It'll be, it'll be good beyond your wildest dreams and fulfilling and satisfying and no bad bosses in heaven. Just That's a guarantee for sure. Um, step five, go back to work. We said we would do it. It's a commitment. (laughs) It'd be great to be like, peace, I'm out. But winning the lottery is not easy, and therefore, you gotta go back to work. And it's more than just money, even though that's a major part, it's provision for our lives. It's, we said we would show up. We should honor our commitment and be truthful there, right? You gotta go back to work then, after we've sat with God and brought this. And then step six, Repeat. Rinse and repeat. Yes. Yes. Monday always comes. Sometimes too, too quickly, right? You feel that. And, uh, and yet, here it is, week after week after week. Whatever work God has given you, it arrives at your doorstep faster than you may have chosen. And yet, we go back and we repeat and we, we take our, whatever we're dealing with, the difficulties, and we bring them back to God and in His presence and rest with Him and, and, and get rejuvenated with God. And then we go back to work. When we repeat this over and over again. You know, um, I'm reminded that that what work really is for 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 really all of us in some way it's it's giving, it's giving of ourselves to do something. It's in some ways it's giving ourselves away. Especially when you talk to people who've had long careers and they look back at those and they say, "I gave 30 or 40 years of my life to this." company or this career. It's a common thing you hear said as people reflect that it's about giving ourselves away and as we, commun- as, we, as we transition into our time of communion, I think this is one of those deep truths that is so helpful here too. Jesus did the biggest and best and greatest work that's ever been accomplished and ever will and how did he do it? He gave himself away he gave himself for us. That's why, that's why our communion words that are given to us from the Lord are, this, this is my body, given, given for you. This is my blood, given for you. And he's our champion and our shepherd, and we can follow Jesus in that, but we don't follow him without power because he gave himself first, because he did his work and finished his work. We can go back to our work. And we can partake of this communion as a, as a community of saints and rejoice in Jesus that, that he's got good things for you waiting for you. Waiting for you Monday morning. God's got good things for you to do. And he's going to give you the power and the fortitude and the grace and the patience to get through it if we trust in him. And so that's a beautiful part of what it is to take communion that we think and dwell on. Jesus being our shepherd and our champion as we give ourselves away too. So uh, let, me, let me pray for us here in, in our confession and, and for communion. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by the things we have done and by the things we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Uh, so here at Elmwood, we value all of the generations and, and, and we, uh, we value the next generation. So we, we like to have our kids come back. So as, as we start to take communion and, and sing and pray together, uh, you might hear some little ones running around. We love that. Um, and so we'll continue to worship So uh, as as we come to this communion table, we are reminded of our brokenness, our idolatry and sin. It's a burden too heavy to bear in our own strength, but we do not come here without hope because God has made a way. And so even as we confess our sin, we confess the good news of the gospel together. Let's confess this in Psalm 103. Would you say this with me? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in love. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his commandments. On the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do it. Do this for the remembrance of me. And so according to our Lord's command, we remember his death and we proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming in glory. So when you're ready, we invite you to come on up and take communion with us.